Listening to the People You Should Know podcast with your host, Bill Kuhn. Thank you, Dave. Dave Calloway, everybody. Little fun fact about Dave kale chips are actually named after him because both taste kind of disgusting but yet are healthy for you. It's episode 12, season one. And this is an episode. Let's put it that way. I've been really excited to debut this one. It's a really good interview. A long interview. Probably the longest one in the show's history. I know a studded 12-week history really goes back into the 60s. I know. But nonetheless, I don't want to do too much talking on the front end. Rather, I'll do all that when the interview ends. And we'll talk about next week. Because this interview is so long that it's actually going to be two parts. I had the pleasure of sitting down with today's guest, Kate Koberman, and her mother, Rose, and I was at their house for over three hours, like three and a half hours. We sat there, mics on, talked. She has quite a story. The two of them have quite a story because, as you'll soon hear and learn, they've been almost inseparable, it sounds like, their entire lives, and they have such a cute little bond. They finish each other's sentences. They bounce off one another. You're going to hear all that in this podcast. But a little quick background. How I learned about Kate was actually through our debut guest, Megan King. She has EDS. You may remember her. People seem to love that episode. It's probably one of the higher-ranked episodes. And Megan, after I interviewed her, she called me or texted me. I can't really remember which one, but she reaches out and she goes, all right, I have a friend. I met her at Mayo. Her story belongs in your podcast. You got to get her on there. Her name's Kate. Next thing I know, I'm on the phone with Kate and her mom. We're talking for probably 45 minutes to an hour. And I realize there's so much of this story that I have to go meet them in person because this is so cool. So I go grab a car and I drive all the way up to Mayo. It was like a six-hour drive. I did a whole round trip in a full day. Had an opportunity to sit down with her and her mom. They invited me into their home. And again, what came out of it was a two-part episode. Episode one around her life story. Because her life story is that, again, her name is Kate Koberman. And she currently has what doctors are calling Koberman syndrome. So I'll pause, let you put two and two together. Yeah, they named it after her. Essentially, through her syndrome, her body is is fragile. It, it is. And her bones have a tendency of breaking. You'll hear about this as the two of them discuss the her life story. And it all led up to a point in her life where they did a DNA test. When the DNA test came back, it came back essentially saying no matches, leaving the doctors to be like, you're the only one. And you'd think that would maybe drag someone down, make them very depressed, make them kind of a reclusive person. But nay, nope, not Kate. Kate is a fireball. She's awesome. Like, you're going to laugh several times. She made me laugh hysterically, even though she was telling a really serious story. She made me just break out laughing in the middle of the interview. She's truly an incredible person. Her mom, as well, an incredible woman. She's 
the two of them. I love them. I could have talked to them for hours upon hours more, but unfortunately, I had to hit the road because instead of staying in that Mayo area, unfortunately, the best place I could find, all the hotels were kind of booked up. The the best Airbnb was a farm, and I'm not really a rooster and cow kind of guy. So I booked it. I left early uh, with a nice little bag of candy that Rose gave me. Super sweet. Rose, if you're listening, thank you ever so much. That was delicious. But what came of that meeting and that interview was this full chunk here that I want to share with you all, which is Kate's life story. And it's a story you're going to want to listen to. No more talking from me. I'll talk when this is over. Here it is. My interview with Kate Koberman and her mother, Rose. Joining me on the podcast today and welcoming me into their home is Kate Koberman, the main subject of today's podcast, and her mother, Rose Koberman, who's going to provide that motherly element, motherly influence to the conversation. Now, Kate, your story is very intriguing. Well, thank you. So let's start it off where it all began, the day you were born, 1976. Yes. Born in Spring, Missouri, and November 30th, and it was basically uh, until the age of 18 months, developmentally. And actually, everything seemed completely average, typical, until oh, 18 months, and that's when I first had my uh tibia fracture how did you fracture it actually my at that time uh, my sister uh, was holding me we were just kind of playing around and um they i thought at that point i had sprained it she was you know playing and then that weekend at church uh i was on mom's lap i don't remember this but um been told and uh so dropped something and my uh right ankle tibia was in between for uh when she leaned over to get whatever i dropped her uh kind of her abdomen and lap and um i guess it just kind of pushed it over the edge and um it was uh from then it was that fracture which uh, they realized was not typical. And they realized after it wasn't healing for a while. Um, and they saw spots on the x-ray. They realized I had some kind of other issue going on. And um, with my mom and dad both, both being in the medical field, in a way, I was very blessed because I had a lot of, uh, we had friends that were physicians or doctors that my dad had gone to school with. So I was able to get in. And um, from there, they sent me because they couldn't figure out why my bone was not healing. And my understanding is they thought it was cancer. Initially, yes. Yeah, they had to rule that out first. Well, <clears throat> they put her in a walking cast, um, and it was extremely unusual for a toddler in a below-the-knee cast to stop walking. Uh, normally, they just pick right up and go on walking. And I 
basically it looks like a uh, ski boot. Okay. So should have been able to just go about my, you know, business. But I I honestly don't know if it was too painful or what, but I started walking on my knees. And at, at that point, of course, they um, when we went back in three weeks to check the, um, to see how it, it was healing after the cancer and, and the things they could test her for had been ruled out, um, they noticed some additional spots in her bones. In the bone itself, it looked um, like these tiny shaded areas. And they realized that the, the fracture itself had not healed. And at that point, um, they sent us to um, Mayo and had her first bone biopsy, which came back nothing specific, which meant it wasn't normal, but it wasn't abnormal. So we returned home and uh, cast chains off and on for several months. And finally, the bone appeared to have healed in a strange way, but they did take the cast off. I call it mended. It mended. Mended, all right. So yeah. shortly after that, within six months, and she's always had a lot of fire, uh, squirmed around and was a character, but she, um, I was getting ready to have a, a auxiliary fundraiser at our house. In my doing, too. And yeah. she fell off the kitchen cabinet. I was right next to her, and the minute she hit the floor, I knew that she had broken something, and it was the other side of her body. And um, interesting enough, the uh, uh, my co-hostess I was talking to was her orthopedic surgeon, and so she got a hold of him, and That's I met right. him at the hospital. Yeah. And um, they discovered that she had broken her left femur. So at that point, they put her in a spica cast, which is from the waist down both legs. And at that point, uh, and after that cast came off, um, she she walked crawling like a soldier would if they were walk crawling through mud or um, on the elbows. Okay, to clarify, you're how old at this point? She by this time she was uh, two. Two. Because we had just started the potty training, okay. and with the spica cast, Correct. it made for a lot of problems. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that the. Uh, during that time, then she had two more uh, bone biopsies and was sent to Children's um, Hospital at Barnes um, in St. Louis, and uh, she was um, she was there three weeks doing a numerous amount of um, testing, and nothing was showing up or presenting anything. And actually, I will say that's one of my first memories is uh, being there. Uh, I remember one day they had uh, a team of uh, Walt Disney characters come up to the floor, but that research unit, I don't know how they are now, but back then that was... It was a combination tough. of very unusual. Uh, there was a little boy with a brain tumor and uh, another little boy that had copper deficiency they were really extremely uh, unusual Unique cases. cases. Yeah. yeah, all coming to one spot. Yeah. Right. So I want to jump ahead to 1979. You're three years old, and you're beginning to crave knowledge. You're starting to read a little bit, and you're essentially, I guess it's fair to say, you're craving normalcy as well. Mm -hmm. um, and you start applying to some preschools. You want to take it from there? 
I actually had to back my uh, fantasy world was so uh, in the scope of how you would compare it, I guess, to a child my age, huge. Because I had, um, there was a lot that physically, you know, I couldn't do in the neighborhood with kids. So I played, like, on my own. I had every Fisher-Price toy there was. And, and she had something I going on all the time. Stories, it was, like, elaborate. I realized that she really needed, um, and the, the other two children had had uh, preschool, um, experiences in Montessori and a couple of the other schools that were in Springfield just to have the interaction and activity and I felt like that was very important to um, her childhood and none of them would take her because they were afraid with her bone problems and not knowing what was going on with her that uh, it, it would be a liability. So at that point a friend of mine told me about the uh, it's now the Developmental Learning Center in Springfield. Initially, it was the initially it was the CP Center, mm -hmm. and it was that time in Katie's life where, uh, even though the bone issues were still going on and not resolved, um, the uh, center and the uh, the faculty um, and just the atmosphere. Uh, gave Katie personally an opportunity to um, to be verbal. So you, Rose, you were obviously able to realize all this because you're her mom, but Kate, were you cognizant at this time and aware of the fact that you had been rejected by other places, other preschools? Uh, you know, it didn't matter to me. No. Mm -hmm. no. So then you as a mom, were you angry or where were your emotions at you know i would i felt like she was in a great place for the opportunities that she has because even if you want to say a normal child isn't necessarily put in a position like that um, when they go to uh, a regular school and uh, she had a lot of opportunities that most children really don't have but it was a good one for i think helping build a self-esteem to giving her uh, poise and confidence in her um, in her position in life and um, she really held her own all through school and they also mainstreamed her in to a um, the elementary school that the other two siblings she was the first one but it was Di Disney elementary school and they mainstreamed her into it and they were wonderful about accommodating her and of course, by this time, she had, um, after being in St. Louis and a couple other places, uh, her dad built her first wheelchair. But of course, during this time, she wasn't walking. And uh, so that's where I, she had her. I forgot to mention that to you. Uh -huh. Yeah. So he built this wheelchair. Yeah, in uh, Springfield, Missouri. Yeah, at that time, we were told. Seat. I was going to say, yeah. Wood? Was it, was yeah, it? exactly. We were told that they did not make pediatric chairs. Yeah. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank days. God, my dad, handyman too. I mean, he he turned everything in stained glass, but very uh, he, he's great at building things. He took a uh, 
uh, if you remember, they're probably they're, they're not orange. on the market now, but the orange bicycle seats, for kids. seats that used to be, I'm sure you rode in one, sure on the back of your parents' bikes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah he took that seat, put two bicycle tires on the side. But he, he did them with two by fours, and he did. And then a coaster in the front. Mm -hmm. oh. And in the back. And at the school that she was at, the uh, Developmental Learning Center, they had, uh, one of the students had an um, uncle who worked in a, a metal st shop, and so he took the chair and they manufactured a few um, chairs. And then when we got to St. Louis, then we found a chair, that, a manual chair that was small enough. Kate's got contractures in both of her arms, though. And to clarify, what are contractures? And so she always had somebody yeah, okay. pushing her and in grade school she always had a friend um, they used to fight over who got to push her to recess I, or, I always I push myself but it was always more fun to, you know uh -huh. let people so she always fell into a social program fortunately and I still think that goes back to her preschool opportunity at the Developmental Learning Center and um, absolutely I was I will say one thing that I find is so awesome about uh, I guess having to go there is Springfield is not the most uh, diverse place to live or you know I guess uh, for a any kind of minority, and I was exposed to so many various unusual things that nothing really faced me. I mean, not everybody, but she was a familiar face, and so. And it's an appreciation I still have because I know that, you know. And I do too, as a parent, because it's very difficult. Uh, to have, um, to be challenged, uh, and to have to be accepted. Um. So from a young age, did you automatically embrace being quote unquote different, or did you I didn't fight it know I was. Okay. Her fourth grade teacher uh, wrote on her uh, information she left for her, her uh, Teacher, she said Kate's the one in the wheelchair, but she'd never know. She doesn't know. That's what she said. <laughs> like, don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Secret. Uh huh. <laughs> I mean, not that I was in denial. Yeah, you were. You were <laughs> but I just everything was okay with her. Just didn't let it really bother me, you know. You just lived your life. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, that's cool. Good answer. So 1983, you're seven years old, and it is my understanding that around that point, you started having some breathing issues. I um, basically, within one year, my back, which I had never had issues aside from uh, my long bones, so my legs were the aches and the spots, uh, when I fractured my tibia and femur. I hadn't really, they didn't really detect any kind of issues with other uh, parts of my anatomy or bones. And within, I would say, one year, I was seven years old. 
when it started. My back's closed. Rapidly. And, um, my, uh, breathing was affected because it changed the way my, uh, rib cage, everything was shaped. And, uh, so restricted breathing kicked in. Um, I would have basically, uh, monthly issues with asthma-like uh, problems that I uh, usually ended up inpatient. And so, kind of, at the time I was in my late, later elementary, junior high years, I, uh, uh most of my schooling was homebound. Um, and then my friends would all come over after school. How was that transition for you, going from traditional school to homeschool? She didn't feel as well then. And during the time, just to back up and say that um, during her good experiences in school initially, she continued to have an immense amount of pain in the left femur area. Um, we don't know if it was... Uh, uh, stress fractures or what it was, but uh, during this timing, everything was not wonderful. The issue of the bone problem was still there that we had to deal with and didn't know what we were dealing of with. Of course, yeah. So uh, we'll get into the, the pain, of course, in great detail uh, in a bit, but, but um, in terms of... <laughs> well, the, I, I want to say that, that with the change in her back, it was visibly noticeable to me in the tub or when she was swimming, which was her the joy of her life. She loved to swim. And that was at the same time that I noticed a different shape in her chest. And um, that was when the breathing issue started. And because of the restricted breathing from the, the chest barreling and because of the scoliosis, and it continued. I mean, you could see it, it just didn't go just a little bit. It, it was severe. Um, it set off asthma type uh, issues and she was hospitalized over and over and then um, put on oxygen 24 seven mm. when, um, let's see, it was when you were in the seventh, when you were well, seven. There was uh, sixth grade, cause I was tough socially, you know. But, uh, seventh eighth grade and I had uh, eighth grade the uh, experience inpatient where I uh, <coughs> I uh, actually re requested my last rights um, um, coming yes coming from a uh, predominantly Catholic family and um, you know I uh, I was pretty sure that was it. So uh, initially, when the scoliosis started and the breathing problems started, that was when the physicians in Springfield felt uh, very uncomfortable. Uh, they knew she needed a rod in her back, mm -hmm. uh, but because of her breathing issues, they were very uncomfortable doing anesthesia there or doing the surgery there because of the bone issues and the healing. So they sent us to Gillette Children's, and um, and in the cities. Minneapolis. Uh, yep. That's when the uh, rod was first put in her back. And
And what year are we at at this point? My Rob has been in 86. I was in, uh, it was between third and fourth grade. For a while it seemed to help, and then... Well, I think it did help. I think uh, miraculously we came home within... She did much better than they thought. It was like a week, and um, I did great, but, you know... Then the breathing issues... Over time have had, without a diagnosis of my whatever uh, bone issues are, condition... That's what I call the first part of our journey, and then we had a fork in the road, and before the, the one was, it has never been. And what's the fork? The fork was then with the breathing issues. Oh, it went from it. the bone problem to the, to the breathing problems, which then kind of put the bone problems in the back seat because the breathing had become such a severe concern. And as by the time she hit sixth grade, our physicians had told us that they would really be surprised if she lived, lived past adolescence. Um, and what's going through your head when you hear that? Well, it's devastating. It, it was devastating, frustrating. Uh, you know, at that point, nothing had been, um, they hadn't been able to explain anything or tell us anything. And so it's just being in total limbo and, um, and terrified. It, it, was, uh, it was awful and just to go on and try to have a, as normal a life as possible uh, was difficult, but... Um, and Kate, were you aware of the timetable they gave you? Um, I pretty much had told my parents, you know, goodbye. And so I feel like from kind of that point on, every single day is just like a gift. You know, I was like, I don't know. No, you know, I don't care who you are. Right. If you have a good health or not, you can't really count on. The experience in eighth grade, um, when we did have, uh, that was when the physician said they really thought that that was, that she wouldn't live through that experience. And we had the priest come in, and Kate, said to me, she said, Mom, I want you to go ahead and live your life. And um, uh, it was so hard to hear your child say that, um, and so hard to believe. Um, but that part of her life was a complete, I mean, for me to say that that experience in the hospital was the last experience in the her hospitalization as far as her health when she was discharged she didn't go back to the hospital again until 2000 when we were in a car wreck I was in an oxygen tent uh, they have for people that need a lot more like humidity oxygen more so than you can get nasal cannulas or anyway and, and, and we, we can jump around cities. So what's the, what's uh, city. Spring, Missouri, still. So, so yeah. Back in yeah. Springfield. And you uh, also, during this time, we didn't speak about the oh, scoop yeah. that she had put in. So I had the nasal cannula. That was tried when she was in sixth for grade. For a few years, but it, it made, because uh, of the high uh, leader flow, I had ulcers in my sinuses. Okay. So I laughed, sneezed, coughed. 
off, whatever, and it just keeps bleeding, you know, up my nose. So they, uh, my dad actually found it where you could put the uh, oxygen, tiny oxygen. It's called a transtracheal catheter. It's uh, also known as a scoop, like a a slang term kind of, but they don't do it very much uh, anymore, and I don't know why. other than the maintenance is a little tough because you have to change it and irrigate it. And she did it herself. I mean, it was awful to watch her. So for people who, you know, um, people listening to this with little to no medical background, so for them just to understand and compare it, mm-hmm. is it kind of like when someone has like a tray for a like tray? a smoking? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, mm-hmm. Got it. but kinda. it's the, the catheter that they use, uh, the trach is, metal and uh, plastic and it's larger and the scoop is more the size of a small straw straw, uh, like a drinking straw that is a a heavy-duty rubber and then you wear a chain to hold it in place and you clean it with saline and there's a a stick if you will that you have to irrigate it and then yeah her wand her magic wand so she did that for a couple of years. If I didn't take the uh, tube out completely to clean it, I would just take the wand, and which is not pleasurable and probably not why they do a lot of scoops. And, uh, you know, uh, thread it down my uh, windpipe through my trachea and then irrigate it with saline. And how often would this happen? Um... She has to clean it at least three times a day. Three to four times, even at school too, because I start, I went started back to high school, yeah. and at, at that point actually, it was a life changing wedding because a pivotal experience because I was able to use the O2, uh, cut down the leader flow hugely. So let's go back to the hospital then. So you're on oxygen eighth grade you're taken to the hospital put into an oxygen tank and the doctors don't know if you're going to make it through the night but you do Uh, yeah i knew i would be okay that night only because um i had had my last rites i was fighting sleeping i was afraid to go to sleep um she was afraid she wouldn't wake up like i was sleeping i was in that tent so pretty confined, mm-hmm. uh, plus on uh, O2, so not breathing well at all. I think the doctors obviously were shocked that she lived through it. And on top of that, to say that she left the hospital, we did have to go see the cardiologist, but she never went in with another lung issue after that. And she only improved uh, uh, lung-wise with the fact that as she lost the the fluid, because her little body is so compact, a little bit of edema causes her an immense amount of, of breathing issues. Kate, how tall are you? Uh, well, I think they put in centimeters. I'm sure they just measured me recently, but I always say I'm a generous Three feet, <laughs> <laughs> but I sit down. So, yeah, 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 hey, and my uh, my chair. 
Yeah. Elevates. Uh, so you're about like, to like four nine? Yeah, That's like huge. Strong four nine. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. It's almost like a five footer. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Getting through that the next ten years though, when I look back, I she had ten wonderful years before then the next uh, issue we went 2000. through was when two thousand. Uh, but she uh, was able to, uh, I think initially with the edema, lose some of the water weight. Right. Then she was able to, to make her own uh, routine of a workout and she went on a fat-free diet and she always ate healthy anyway. That craze was going on, no fat. But that was the year of the fat-free diet. My brother's girlfriend was instrumental in me uh, learning that. Yeah. But it yeah. worked for her. And, um, yeah, I did. She, Katie was up to 90 pounds and by, um, on three feet. Uh, <laughs> she by, uh, let me see, it was three her junior stretch. year in high school. Uh, they had weaned her off the, the uh, to make sure that she could be off the oxygen. She saw the cardiologist, the pulmonary physician, her uh, primary caregiver and Everything was taken off the oxygen awesome. and she had 10 wonderful years. I mean then it was high school, never missed a dance, uh, was active with the student council, uh, went to college. Uh, every kind of every other thing has had kind of the element of my goals here to the goal like you know life. Um, and I've never, I've never thought of it as something that would, like, any of my conditions, I guess you want to call them, uh, something that would limit me or hold me back. Um, uh, I think my mother was huge, uh, as far as influential, you know, uh, being influential, uh, in, in, um, preschool, um, Actually, uh, Mary Witters was the director, and um, she was also um, one of the people that I got really, uh, looking back, think, I don't know, you know, shaped, yeah, C.D. Bradshaw Perez, that really were instrumental in shaping how, I guess, my perspective and how I chose to see things attitude her life was normal as far as she was concerned right and then the car became a situation and you want to continue there uh katie started driving we had a car converted for her when she was in um let me see a junior in high school and it was a minivan and it was real weird to watch this tiny person roll into a van <laughs> and take off down the street <laughs> I mean, minivan or not, <laughs> anyway. So she was extremely oh, independent bus. and uh, did get an electric wheelchair, which she initially did not want because she thought that would make her look more handicapped. Mm. Yes, look, it wasn't necessarily the look. It was just like it made me feel like I was more dependent mm -hmm. on one something. But after, yeah, after I was in it, I was like, oh my God. I have my mind what what was i thinking yeah she fought fought for two years but uh so she drove <laughs> she drove and, and um, 
Oh, that was junior high in high school. Or, or, I'm sorry, eight, a junior in high school, 17. I got my license when I was 18, finally. Yeah, and uh, had the van. And um, and then I yeah, ended up, when I graduated, I went to Missouri, uh, which is right there in Springfield. What'd you study? Initially, I studied uh, psychology and political science. Why? No, right? <laughs> and, and I'm like, what? <laughs> that's a big combination right now. Um, we had mentioned kids earlier. And uh, after my experiences going through, uh, and I actually wanted to be pre-med. And my dad much discouraged it. And because um, I... I really thought, you know, I wanted to work with kids. And so after I started undergrad and kind of exploring different things, I decided that uh, really for me, if I didn't go to med school, which at that time seemed kind of not possible physically, but now, you know, they make all kinds of, adaptations and things but um, in hindsight I went into psychology thinking that I'd work mostly pediatrics but with families too um, with uh, either sick or terminal kids and um, I love art so I was really big into like art therapy and um it's to me uh, something that I was not um, exposed to that I feel like really would have been beneficial, yeah, because um, everything I went through, I tended to stuff and didn't want to talk about or you know it. agree with it, and so then it ends up coming back to a surface at some point and it's something you have to you know deal with um process it's easier not to think about it yeah very understandable no i get it i get it but the car accident 2000 you have a car you have your independence you're driving you have this van what happened? It was her first day of her second year in grad school. Uh, it was the first, yeah, it was the first day of my PsyD PhD uh, program because I just finished my master's and um, I got rid of my wife and totaled our van. And, um, he was heading for us broadside and I was in a crossing an intersection that had a privacy fence in the so corner. I was driving the car that day, and Kate was in her lockdown in her electric chair behind me. Mm -hmm. And um, as I got into the intersection, I was following two cars, and out of the corner of my eye, I could see him heading broadside for us, and I really thought we were dead. And he swerved and uh, totaled our car, and... Um, How fast? They think he was going around 70, and we were the third car 
target that threw at the Greens. There were two uh, men. There was a church on the uh, opposite corner of the street we were crossing, and they, two of the ministers had gotten off work, and they were waiting for me to cross the intersection so they could make their left turn. They had already missed it. Mm. And they stopped, and I asked them if they would stay. They had seen the wreck. And uh, there were two other people, the police told us, that called in and said, if you need witnesses. It happened on 3.30 on a Friday afternoon. Uh, in July. And July the first thing, when it came to a stop, and of course the airbags went off, the front of the car was torn off. And there was I, smoke. How much of the accident do you remember? I had just been to my um, class on the brain. And I was at that point, um, you know, in psychology, all I could think about was like, stay awake. <laughs> I was, honestly, I was terrified. I was like, oh my God, my brain, my brain, because my head hurt so bad, you know. But I have to tell you, our friend walked up on the accident. I was in shock. The I first thing she did with a smile on her face said, Brad, how's Jennifer and how are the kids? Right. And I'm standing, I'm standing in this pool, uh, this of, pool of some kind of liquid and... And I looked down and then I was like, Mom, are you bleeding? And I said, I don't even it know. It was some kind of fluid from the car. I, I think it was oh antifreeze, I'm not sure. I mean, but anyway, she was not, there was, it had to have been the shock because I thought, how could this have just happened and and she's asking Brad. Well, people might want to know now, how was Brad and the family? Oh, they were okay, they were <laughs> devastated. <laughs> I don't know that he didn't get answer. I think he was just like. He was in a state of shock too, I think. Wow, yeah. Yeah, but you know what? To this day, they're awesome, they're doing well. Good, yes. the gentleman. Exactly. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. Exactly. So medically, what happened thereafter? And I ended up uh, later on, um, because at that point in Missouri, they put me on a ton of pain meds, and I voluntarily just quit driving, which almost... That was devastating to her. Yeah, because that was like my freedom, you know, my independence. And uh, that was one of the hardest things that I've had to just voluntarily do. But at that point, when the car hit us, and the first thing when we came to a stop, I said to Kate, are you okay? And she said, my head is killing me. So I got out of the van. I would bruised my left side. I was, she said, are you okay? And I said, I don't know. But I got out of the van. I opened the, the back of the car. And uh, she already had a ping pong size um, hematoma. hematoma on her left at the top of her forehead it was huge and it was so hot we had a, a friend that came up on the accident that came over and uh, Kate said mom can you get me out of the car they had called an ambulance and um, when I went to pick her up she didn't even realize that she had refractured her left femur um, from the impact and just from the I guess her seatbelt in the in the uh, wheelchair, uh, and it had tipped. Even though she was locked down, the, it had tipped and was able to hit her head that hard. So she ended up 
with a, um, a broke re refracture on her left femur and a um, brainstem injury that fortunately didn't affect her uh, cognitively, but it did um, then start this whole new, we're back to the bone issues again. Right. And what's going to happen, and if you have to have surgery or whatever, and pain. That's when the pain starts. And then I was going to say, real quick, just learn what she and uh, started seeing as a yeah, neurosurgeon there, but um, they believe, and I, I believe this, I believe this too, um, that I had been predisposed for celiac um, because it's autoimmune and never had issues with gluten, any kind of diet uh, problems. Uh, dietary as far as that went and um, after that um, it was when I started noticing a lot of GI issues um, gradually but becoming worse and this was all because of the injuries you sustained uh, but we didn't know they, that the autoimmune it, exactly. it triggers it different things it was like medications they had me on because they put me on uh, pain meds and like Max. She yes. had migraine-type headaches that were not vascular, but it was the injury, the brainstem injury from the wreck. So they couldn't treat it with like a tryptoline, like a normal, um, like Imitrex or something. They, it had to be, I ended up taking um, Topamax, which is an anti-seizure medication, and um, it helped tremendously. However, um, I just realized and learned uh, this year up here at Mayo that um, it's one of the reasons um, people develop kidney stones a lot. And um, so I have not, I, I stopped taking that. Uh, gosh, it's been, I stopped taking that last year. And basically, what had happened, um, just to back up a little bit, um, I got to the point where it was, I was not doing well. And um, it was apparent with the medications uh, I was on, I was needing more. Uh, the t my tolerance was going up. They're not good for your body anyways and so I did my own research looking into um, different ways to manage pain. Um, I went through PRC here at Mayo which is their pain uh, rehabilitation center and it's awesome. Uh, they teach you all kinds of like alternative ways to manage or cope with uh, whatever issues you may have and also taper if you're on medication, taper you off, uh, which I did. They weren't sure I could actually get off of everything. And um, that was in 2011. Um, however, with my bones and finally having the, the celiac diagnosis and realizing how much... How long uh, and it was diagnosed. Right, and how that had affected my bones. That were already bad. In addition to 
whatever the disease or condition was. There's one part in here, uh, and I don't know how significant it is, but after the accident, um, the neurosurgeon, especially at WashU, was ex concerned because he said you can continue to have uh, it's basilar invagination and it's settling. It's just a settling of your um, cranial settling. So like my head, kind of like Megan, if you listen to you know Megan's podcast, kind of like a, her head was basically not attached. Right, mine, same thing, but mine was, uh, since I've got a fusion, a metal rod, my, uh, my rod was, and my head were basically coming together, so I had this issue with the compression, and... But the fear was, with the way her bones do not heal, it was trying to do any kind of intervention and not knowing how the bones would heal, they won't do anything, or they can't. We talked about, I mean, I've talked about the halo, I've talked, we've been... But in saying that, that took us back to when she was three and at WashU and did the test. The doctor there that did the bone, he was the bone specialist, still had Katie's record. Even in his office, it hadn't even ever left to go to the archives, which they usually put him in at a period of time, and he still remembered her. So, um, all of this, it's it like it comes back around to um, this craziness with the bones and the DNA study and, that they couldn't do back when she was little. So then it was the doctor at Wash U who did the DNA test at this point, correct? Well, actually, it ended up that, okay, go ahead. We started going back to WashU and had seen Dr. White, who I, my bone guru, he's a bone guru there. And uh, uh, actually he wanted to know, you know, if I needed a fusion, blah, blah, blah. Everybody was curious at WashU. Well, I got to the point where it was um, beyond WashU and they, uh, we had actually gone to, because I, with a brainstem injury, mm -hmm. you often lose the ability to regulate your temperature, yeah. body temp. So I didn't sweat in summer, the winter I'd freeze. And so, uh, in Missouri, it's not even here in Minnesota, but we would go to Florida, Dustin, where, um, as a child, uh, we would do spring breaks, or, um, mom, uh, and I, you know, they care about the, I remember the moms all caravaning yeah, down, you know, is our place. Yeah. So um, that's where I actually, in 2014, I uh, <clears throat> I had purchased a, uh, a big bone and really looking forward to kind of, you know, painting it. And uh, I like, I like decorating. I get it from my mother, I think. Um, and so we were excited, you know, genuinely about being on the water. And it's, um, for me, for my mom, I know it's peace. You know, it's, and, um, you know, it's like, it's like for me, uh, sometimes natural church. You just feel like you're closer. <laughs> 
some ways to go to God. Yeah, we need to get out of it. And so, uh, unfortunately, that Easter, I had uh, started helping a friend, an artist friend, open a gallery. And uh, we were at their family home. <coughs> and I fell out of my uh, chair at an elevated height of my big height of a... Uh, four, nine, or five feet, whatever. <laughs> yeah, huge. And, uh, but, uh, for me, that was, um, catas- almost catastrophic because I landed, uh, actually, um, I had on a hoodie and it caught in a power wheelchair, so they're very sensitive. And, um, I did not have my seatbelt on. And my hoodie, we were getting ready to leave, and I uh, just scooted back in my seat. And the sleeve of my hoodie caught the joystick on my chair. And the chair threw. And it went, my chair went back, and I went forward. And uh, tried to, I think I, I don't actually remember, but tried to catch the couch and ended up on my back and the back of my head. And that's what actually brought us back up here um <laughs> after her she was unconscious we called 911 and uh they uh, after some really terrible uh care in florida mm-hmm. um uh we i called uh, my physicians from there finally and um so that's how we ended up back here but it was during that time, of course, that the DNA um, uh, had become available. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they did one DNA study. It was the first one since she had been up before. And uh, once again, they found nothing that... There's a, there's a bone disease that's called the brittle bone disease, common term. Osteogenesis. Oh, I, osteogenesis. And it's one of the diseases they always thought that she had. And by this time in years, there are several different varieties of them. So they were looking again for that. They actually even tested, I know, they sent my DNA all over, but, uh, so apparently I've been even global all over the world. I didn't know. She does yeah. not uh, Geneva, I any apparently great place. Uh, but they didn't match me with anything. So, um, but I, you know. Um, and most recently they've done another one and she has four of her own gene strands. DNA, yeah. So she the issue goes back again. They can't treat a bone disease if they don't know what it is that they're treating. The one thing they tried to do was to give her some bone infusions, which to try to keep it from getting better because when you lose bone, when you have celiac disease or a wheat allergy, when you lose the... Ability to uh, absorb in your small intestine. It doesn't come back. You can improve it with your diet. It it slowly, if you're very, very... Um, strict with the gluten-free diet, it improves, but you still have absorption problems. So the DNA is taken because they finally have the technology now, current day, for the most part, 2014, 
and they're sending your DNA strands out to specialists around the world, essentially, to try to find a match for a, a, basically just a Something. diagnosis. Something, yes, just like, like anything. Just to tell you what you have. Yes. Yeah. And Maybe we're opening even for a mutation of OI. It, you know, it's so hard to imagine. I mean... Even when you're in a large group of people, there's sometimes I think, how can she be the only person that has whatever it is that she has? How can that be possible? Mm -hmm. um, and still, I, it's, it's really hard to imagine that that's true. Um, many times people say, oh, I have a friend that has this or that, but if it's not gonna show in a DNA study, it's, it's not there, and if the doctors say, we can't treat your bones because we don't know what they're doing, um, it's... What does that make me feel? That's what it is. Um, Isolation? A lot, I think. Well, that's a definite thing. I think a lot of it is also... Uh, Realizing, like, um, how when you have an, an ability or able, like, even your health, it's priceless. And to me, I feel like a lot of people don't even give it a second thought. You know? Um, and it seems to me a lot of times unfortunately it's it's when something happens in their family or to them personally that it's uh even considered or you know ought to be something that isn't just an individual thing it's it's pretty uh universal i mean pain is a universal thing whether it's emotional, physical, or whatever. And for me, the hardest part, because of the, um, because <coughs> of the unknown, and the, um, lack of, I guess, uh, any kind of the, uh, diagnosis or, uh, prognosis, um, it's, so, I think sometimes, uh, frightening but also it's it's something that I can't it doesn't define my life mm -hmm. uh, because otherwise I feel like it would consume me you know mm -hmm. Makes sense. so the doctor essentially told you after all the DNA strands come back that you know, you are the only person they, to their knowledge who yeah. has this. Uh -huh. And is that the moment when they say to you, we're just going to name it after you? Is that what they said pretty much? Yeah, that kind of started, uh, I think it was when I started coming back up here and had the first DNA that came back as nothing again. And uh, my uh, PM, he's a physical medicine doctor um, um he's basically said we're just gonna call it coberman's syndrome for now because there's no 
There's no name for it. There is no a name. No. She has skeletal dysplasia, right. but that's not what her What's bone. Yeah. Right. What the bones are actually doing. Right. Yeah. And even though I'm I'm such short stature, I've like they ruled out achondroplasia, dwarfism, all of that, which is almost humorous and frustrating too because I uh, I'm. I read, you know, all my reports after my appointments, and it's amazing the number of, of uh, physicians that have completely ignored, like, the DNA and will uh, put it as one of my diagnoses, like, dwarfism. But I think they do it because of her stature, and they don't know what else to say. I don't know. I just, you know, I feel like, why did I go through all that? And then, you know, it's, it's still totally up in the air and, and, and probably may never know. So that was the first portion, part one of the podcast with Kate Koberman and her lovely mother, Rose Koberman. Before I get into next week's part two with Kate and Rose, I want to talk to you guys about World Congress and their fifth annual patient advocacy summit it's happening october 23rd through the 24th at the hilton arlington in arlington virginia i've had the pleasure of working with world congress in the past and i'm here to tell you the events they put on are top notch and the fifth annual patient advocacy summit will be nothing short of that they're going to have interactive discussions. They're going to have a town hall that mixes industry, patient groups, and media all together so you can meet everybody from all these walks of life that take up the patient advocacy realm. They are going to have panels, patient reaction panels, and an FDA perspective panel, as well as plenty, multiple, dozens of workshops developed to provide you with the knowledge you need to help you craft and shape your patient story so that you can create change. By attending the 5th Annual Patient Advocacy Summit, you will have an opportunity to get your hands on high-level case studies developed with C-suite executives, as well as a live patient's dinner, which celebrates the leaders in the patient advocacy community. You got to get there. You got to register. Only way you can do that is to go to worldcongress.com today. Again, the 5th Annual Patient Advocacy Summit happening October 23rd through the 24th in Arlington, Virginia. Check it out. But that's it. That's the end of episode 12, season one. Next week, myself, Kate, and Rose, we sit down and we talk about something that she alluded to several times in today's interview is some of the pain she feels and her quest to find medical cannabis. It's very interesting. It's just as interesting as today's, and you're going to love it. You love this week's episode. Ooh, you, you're going to want to tune in next week. That's for sure. Follow the podcast on Twitter at PYSK Podcast or myself at TheBillCoon. Facebook.com slash TheBillCoon to get all the snippets on Monday morning. If you know of someone who has a very interesting story and you think they should be featured on here, very simple. Go to BillCoonSpeaks.com slash podcast. Click a silver button that says suggest a guest. Let me know about them. While you're there, click the green button. Subscribe to the podcast via email. So you'll make sure you'll get all of these podcasts sent directly to you every Wednesday morning when they come out. And or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Regardless of which one you use, please go on there and give it a five-star review. That way other people can find out all about this podcast. Share it with your friends. Tell them about it. And you can sit around and talk like you do about Netflix. But until next week, friends, have a fantastic Wednesday. 
a great Thursday, an even better Friday, and a kick-ass weekend. I'm out.